0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
2: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
0: Good evening listeners. Good evening listeners. You're
2: tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Celine Ross.
0: And I'm Hannah Stewie. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or if you just want to find, find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, Check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This
2: episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Lonnie Ivey. Lonnie recently graduated with an MA in history and recently presented her capstone project about the long-overlooked history of the black logging community in Maxwell, Oregon. Welcome, Lonnie. We're so excited to have you. Hi,
1: thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: So, I know that you and I had such a rich conversation the other day when we were talking about your history and um, your history as in what you've been studying and also your own personal story, and I wonder if you could just begin a little bit with kind of the basics, like you just graduated with a Master's in History, and what were you studying before then,
1: and what brought you to history? Uh, So I started college in 2017 at Shemeketa Community College in Salem, going for my associate's degree. And at that point, as I'm trying to fill out my baccalaureate uh, core, I really focused on philosophy and took a few religious studies courses. One of the most amazing professors over at Shipper is Dr. Marta Konetska, and she used to teach some of my philosophy courses at Chemeketa. She received a job here on campus, and so after I graduated with my associates, I followed her here. Um, She's just a real inspiration to me. And so when I started at OSU for my undergrad in June of 2019, I met a really influential professor, my grad advisor, Dr. Amy Kohlinger, and I took her Idea of God class. And even though I was majoring in philosophy at the time, I couldn't imagine not doubling in religious studies. And that became a really important part of my life and a part of my community here at OSU. Um, I graduated in 2021 during COVID. Mm. We did it online, Um, my friend and I with our caps on via Zoom. And then I applied for a master's program within the philosophy department for applied ethics. And I took a couple of terms in applied ethics. And although I love philosophy, I didn't feel like it was the right fit for me at the time. I didn't see um, a way forward for me mm-hmm. to, to continue on my journey with applied ethics. And so I already knew and loved uh, everyone in the history program over at Shipper, and with philosophy and religious studies, history just holds hands with the other two disciplines. And so I thought, this is a perfect place for me, because without history, we can't talk about religion, and we can't talk about philosophy, and they all three just intermingle really well. And so I was accepted into the master's program for history, and I just recently graduated um, in June, a couple months ago.
0: That's amazing. I think... Congratulations are obviously in order. It's <laughs> such you. a like huge accomplishment and it's got to feel like probably the most relaxing summer <laughs> of your life so far. <laughs> it,
1: it does because when I started in 2017, I have never taken a term off. I've mm-hmm. gone term to term all through summers for six years and I was really feeling the burnout Especially this last year, especially the last winter and spring terms, I could tell that, you know, wow, I'm a little bit tired because, you know, grad programs just eat your time. You live and breathe uh, reading and writing, and you get really tired of reading and writing. And so um, when I graduated, it was a huge sense of accomplishment. It's something I've always wanted for myself to educate myself. And I started. college really late in life at 47. So yes, it feels good. I've been relaxing with my son. And and even though I feel guilty for relaxing after doing the same routine for six years, it really feels good just to binge YouTube. (laughs) Of course, you deserve it.
2: And I remember you telling me a story about how you first came across the research that would eventually really impact a lot of the course of your life and your time and your energy. And can you talk a little bit about how you first learned about the
1: community that you went on to study and, and research? Sure. Uh, coincidentally, another class with Dr. Kollinger. Um My very first term of grad school, fall of 2021, I took a course called Religion in the American West. Fascinating class. I 10 out of 10 would recommend. Uh, and we took a week for talking about minoritized communities and religion in the Pacific Northwest and in the West. And so we did a little bit on uh, indigenous religious history. And then we had a couple of days where we watched an OPB special called The Logger's Daughter about a woman named Gwen Trice, whose father was an an original uh, logger at this place called Maxville, Oregon in the 1920s. as a logger's daughter and granddaughter, both sides, uh, for a while, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of the story of African American logging community in Oregon, and so I started devouring all the books I can on on I could on Oregon logging and the economy and ecology and forestry, and every single book I read um, were all authored by white people mostly white men and none included any reference to this black logging community of maxville and so I took it as a sign as a logger's daughter and inspired by gwen to dig into maxville and what I found you know I spent two years of my life researching amazing so
2: let's kind of set the scene for maxville so take us there um what perhaps we can start with like what it looks like now And I know you've spent some time there, you visited there. And what was the scene like when these experienced loggers were coming over and where were they coming from? How did they get there? Kind of paint a picture for us of
1: what that looked like. Right. So if I I'll I'll start first and how they got here and then talk about how miraculous uh, Maxwell is right now. But so 1920s, Oregon, um, very racist state, a state with many black exclusion laws written to. Uh, keep people of color out of the state, and uh, keep Oregon a white supremacy styled state. Um, one of the most racially um, derisive in the Union at the time in the 1920s in the Jim Crow South. Uh, there was a huge logging community at the at the time. It was one third of the lumber production was down in the deep South, and and as things were changing, as logging was being depleted, and there was this movement called the Great Migration where um, black and uh, and other people of color, also Chinese, but mainly black folks from the Jim Crow South, were not interested in the only agriculture that was available in a really crappy economy. and as highly skilled lumber workers and mill workers, they decided that this was a great chance to escape the Jim Crow South, escape um, segregation, and try and take their families out of that and and offer their families a better life. And so there was a lumber company down there called the Bowman-Hicks Lumber Company, and they had purchased um, what is now called Maxville. It had several names before that, but they had purchased the property as a satellite Um, logging operation and so as these black folks were migrating to Arizona and then up to Oregon um, Bowman Hicks focused on black skilled labor to come to Oregon paying bonuses to their friends and family and Oregon as we know is has a deep and and rich logging and timber history Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know at the time it was it was a booming economy for logging and timber and so Bowman Hicks tried to maximize profits by um, recruiting these black laborers from the south and they bought a parcel of land in 1923 over in eastern Oregon in Willowa County uh, called it Maxville and it became a permanent town soon after. It was both white and black workers however they were went from trying to leave segregation to a segregated Mm -hmm. town where they were divided by tracks and by ethnicity and marital status. So whites would live on one side of the tracks and blacks on the other. And that even included their schools, uh, which were historically the first schools in Oregon to be um, separated by race, which is, you know, pretty consequential. So, um, like anyone else they thrived as a community uh the it was really important especially the black community to find a sense of belonging and find um a safe space to live in Oregon which is fascinating because in 1923 Oregon our governor at the time was aligned with the KKK and pushed their platform so um it's really amazing Uh, the journey that these folks went on and how they got here and how they managed to thrive until the company wasn't making the profits they wanted to and kind of sold it off and left in 1933. And so some of the families have stayed in the area, like Gwen Trice's family. Others went off to Vanport, Portland, or went back to the south, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. But With Gwen, you know, being the genesis of this movement to kind of reclaim Maxville's spot in Oregon history, uh, she dug into her father's past and started talking to folks around Wallowa and Joseph, Oregon, and has really built up this uh, great place called the Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center, which you can find online. Um, and she's just taken on this huge project, uh, trying to place Maxville back where it belongs, um, centered in Oregon logging history. And so uh, we did go. We, uh, I and a couple of my fellow interns, Jada and Cecily, uh, shout out to them, mm-hmm. <laughs> and our professor Kelly Bosworth, did go and present uh, the work that we had done over the last year, kind of creating an augmented reality of what. Um, Maxville might look like. So if Maxwell has visitors, they, you know, hopefully as a prototype, they can hold up like an iPad and scan it across the horizon and see where the black school was or the lodge was or, or the baseball field. And so now it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I think the picture is on your website. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The community is strong. The bonds are strong. They have a lot of support, but of course they always need more um, yeah. But it's a beautiful place, and, and it really should be um, included and centered in Oregon logging history and in Oregon history.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, when you started off trying to get more information, you're reading, trying to find out what you could about Maxville and about, you know, this this black community of loggers that was here. You weren't able to find that information initially. Um, what kind of breakthroughs did you have trying to like get that information and dig and find that history and find what you were looking for.
1: And that was, I think, one of my biggest struggles in finishing my master's program is because the material and the archival information just wasn't there. And... Lots of secondary sources. So Maxville has kind of been written about in blogs and in travel blogs. And Gwen has done a really good job of giving interviews around the state and around the country, um, focusing on Maxville. But as far as archival records, they're hard to find. They're the Bowman Hicks Lumber Company. It was impossible with the tools I had to go and, and search their archives, or or even go to Eastern Oregon. You know, I'm a mom and I'm in classes, so it's. It almost, you know, impossible at the time during school to finance that and, and get over to research it. But Oregon Historical Society did have some things, and I spent two years going through newspapers. And I was pretty convinced that uh, the art, none of the material existed or it had been lost over time. But during our visit to Maxville in the first week of June, there was an epiphany, and it was that... The records are there, but not necessarily accessible to a white woman historian from a predominantly white institution of OSU. You know, some histories are still recorded, but they're mm-hmm. not for us as white folks in Oregon. And the records are kept and and. There, there, there has to be, you know, a series of things that happen to get access to these records, but they do exist. And I did take some time and spend half of a day at the Walawa Museum and found that there are lots and lo- lots of records that have not been archived and have been lost or stolen through volunteer docents mm-hmm. who have taken them home to do genealogy and they haven't resurfaced until 10, 20 years later, if at all. So it's going to take a long time to get access to these records. And even if we're allowed access, there's a lot of respect that needs to be paid to um, Black people writing Black history. And yeah. so, you know, we need to figure out um, where we just need to listen and learn. And it's going to take a long time to build that kind of trust and relationship building it, it might take. Yeah. I wonder if you can talk a little bit
2: more about that and what feels really important to you as a white historian researching a community of color and specifically one that has been overlooked and left out of the story for so long. Um, What was really important to you in doing this research? What did you want to make sure that you got right? And um, how did you want to frame your relationships with the people who whose history this is? Right.
1: Well, I've always kept that tie of being a loggers daughter, mm-hmm. and I thought a lot about how the Maxville community and the descendants of the original Maxville loggers have not been able to claim the logging identity that's really important in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I felt like there was a huge loss in that. I felt that there was a generational loss of not having these records for the people that grew up in Willawa and around Maxville. Um, it was really important to me to find the facts and to document them not through a white narrative, but through the voices of the lived experiences of Mm -hmm. Maxville loggers. And it was really difficult. The Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center has some great oral interviews and, and photos that are really magnificent, but I didn't want to take away from Gwen's work either. So it was really important for me to retain my autonomy and to just tell a story, because I have white privilege. I have the privilege of being in academia. I have the privilege of of coming to this university, um, and so I felt like it was my job to dig up some of these archives um, and hopefully, you know, share them with whoever wants them. Because that's how erasure happens. If people stop thinking about or um, avoid talking about. Uh, Black history because it's either controversial Mm -hmm. or, you know, it maybe isn't sensational enough to start writing about. It does a real disservice to the Maxville and to the black community over um, in eastern Oregon, actually to, to the entire black community of Oregon. So I just wanted to, instead of telling my narrative, try and tell about the lived experiences of these loggers, where white historians are remiss in, in believing and demanding access to records and to try to remain true to the story instead of propping it up on, you know, on a platform other than for those who, who had that experience and for those families that it belongs to.
0: Yeah, when you, you talk about the logging identity, mm-hmm. which Oregon, the Pacific Northwest... There is definitely a logging identity. People who have had, you know, generations of loggers in their family. Um, that's the majority of the state almost. And yeah. that's been a huge industry. And it's so ev- evident in the landscape around us that you see and, you know, the relationships that people have. And you talked a little bit about how when you have that erasure of history, these generations of people don't have that connection to that identity. Can you talk more about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So uh, I grew up in the country, the, the country country, out by Fall City, Oregon, uh, my entire life. And and as a loggers kid and grandkid, I mean, we, grow up, we didn't grow up wealthy. We grew up in a double wide mobile home. My dad logged and in the summers when uh, loggers were put on um, unemployment benefits for a while and sometimes in the winters. But in the summers, he would go and fight fires, you know. And, but a big part of the identity is still continuing today. So, like, there's festivals and logging competitions. Albany holds a huge one um, that I remember going to as a little, little kid mm-hmm. and watching my dad climb poles and saw logs with each other. And you can go from a community like us, in the dallas oregon kind of community that was the closest big town and i giggle at that but um you can go from albany competition to somewhere like olympia washington and you introduce yourself as a logger and you have an immediate connection to the loggers there it's it's a brotherhood the logging has its own language it has its own culture it has music that is shared it shares a, a conservative lean you know if you're a logger in Oregon, you can meet a logger in Washington or Idaho or Northern Cal and, and you, you've got a family there. And so when these Maxville loggers, their descendants, don't have access to that logging community, it further excludes them from, from claiming their rightful place in, in Oregon logging and timber history. It's, it's really important. You know, loggers are proud. Loggers are tough. Uh, logging is one of the most dangerous occupations in the country. Um, death and injury, you know those stats are, are pretty high and um, so there's this camaraderie or this unspoken like you belong here. And so without Maxville being included in these biographies and autobiographies and really prominent works on Oregon logging history, um, it just deprives you know that that rich cultural, you know, legacy of being able to be a logger anywhere. Yeah. And let's
2: go back to kind of just that lived experience in Maxville and talk about um, the men who were the, who came over, um, who came across the country. I I know you told me the way that they came across the country. And the one thing that you said during uh, when we talked a couple of days ago that really stayed with me was, how you admired their persistence and their perseverance and how the way they were able to thrive was not because of the logging company. It was not because of their white cohort. It was because of, they brought their own communities there Yeah, and do. that feels like a really special part of the story. Um, so if you could talk just about, I know that the first group who came to Maxville, they were, they were all men um, mm-hmm. and then later they brought their families, right? And, and, what sort of community did they develop there? What was maybe like kind of a day-to-day life there? I know you mentioned the school, and and, and so there must have been children. And yeah, what did did that look like?
1: Well, from the material that I've had access to is, you know, uh, most of these men were recruited from like, um, the Great Migration, and and so men went solo. The black men came up solo in rail cars, and mm-hmm. imagine that ride a long, long journey, and just really dehumanizing. Yeah. Um. And then they arrived in La Grande, Oregon, and they were greeted at at. Um, with a lot of men with, with uh, handguns because they had to ensure that these black loggers could get to Maxville safely because Legrand was a really dangerous place. Oh. And so it wasn't that they were greeted with with firepower, but they needed to ensure that these these really skilled workers would make it to Maxville safely. And so... You know, when they would arrive, they would live in boxcars, you know, Mm -hmm. dilapidated boxcars that were used as housing facilities. The white loggers got homes. Um, The black loggers did not until they sent for their wives and family. And then some would get homes, but it, It was unbalanced from the beginning. You know, we talk about um, dehumanizing. You know, these black loggers would be fed in the yard Mm -hmm. instead of in the lodge where the white loggers would be fed. Um, They were called derogatory slurs instead of by their names Mm. which again that's just a really dehumanizing way to treat another human being and so and they were in a a racially tense area of eastern oregon it's still racially tense you know to be frank um and so i think that when you face the same adversity especially for a black community if you face this adversity it does bond you together and you do Find um, a sense of home. All coming from the same place in the deep south, and you know things. Great things also happened at Maxville for this community. There were dances. People, you know, would. Um, there were really vibrant markets because once everyone started arriving to Maxville, the surrounding towns knew that you know they would be in need of of food and other mm-hmm. things, and so you know they would chop wood and they would play games and. They would just live like, you know, normal, yeah. normal families. Just. And you
2: told me a story about uh, the baseball
1: team. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, under the auspices of Bowman Hicks saying that, you know, they were going to create these black and white baseball teams um, to really encourage camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Um, that same um, kind of hands in together didn't happen You know, at nights when the supervisor, the superintendent of the Maxville operation would discourage white workers from having their black cohort to dinner or socializing outside of these baseball games. And so uh, an interesting fact, when I was doing my research for Oregon newspapers around the time we we found uh, the Maxville's team name and they were called the Colored Giants and they were always in the newspaper. You know, they're um, they were fantastic they were on a winning streak uh even the reporters would say everyone is having fun everyone is rooting for them and they were just you know really phenomenal and at times other white teams did not want to (laughs) play um the black maxville team because they were just so good and so having those normal things to do especially a pastime in somewhere like maxville oregon where you've got 14 to 16 feet of snow every summer and and you're traveling by wagon. And so it takes, you know, like several days to get from Maxville into town. You know, it takes a long time. So I think just normalizing that um, these are tough guys and these are t- families that, you know, are tenacious and yeah. and really find a place to thrive. So it wouldn't have been easy to leave the South expecting um, no segregation and then coming to it. But you know, there's been an abuse of black um, folks in black communities for a long time by white communities. And so um, the preciousness is that they found one another and they found a home there and that some families did stay long. But it was difficult.
2: Even that baseball team, I remember you you saying that in the same newspaper that there would be an advertisement for the the baseball game or the the baseball score, there would also be an advertisement to like join the the local KKK meeting. right yeah. yeah
1: so the KKK would take out you know these half page ads um, in the same paper as the Maxville and and um, Elgin scores you know all the little towns over in Eastern Oregon the KKK you know had its second rising in Oregon in 1924 mm-hmm. Um and they had between like 35,000 and 58,000 members at the time and so as we were are in 1923 you know at 6 months after these loggers show up and they're having game or games or a year later and having games and and the KK is KKK is recruiting and there are um they're burning crosses you know just miles away from Maxville so that dichotomy of experiencing this joy of being human beings with complex and complicated lives Um, at the same time next door and surrounding you is the KKK openly recruiting, um, encouraging, you know, danger and inciting violence against people of color. So I just I even through two years, I cannot imagine the strength it had to take um, to, to get through what they did just to preserve peace in in their families and just have a better life outside of the south
2: thank you Lonnie we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back you're listening to KBVR Corvallis is photography your passion or something that you like to do for fun OMN is looking for photographers to help capture breaking news cover sporting events and tell the stories of the people here in the greater Corvallis community any photography skill level is accepted and welcomed for more information on the photo team, visit orangemedianetwork.com and click on the Get Involved tab. That's orangemedianetwork.com and click on the Get Involved tab. September Beer Fest is coming soon and we can barely wait. Join Heart of the Valley Home Brewers among the trees of Avery Park in Corvallis as we celebrate the 16th annual September Beer Fest. September Beer Fest is on Saturday, August 26th and will run from 12 to 7 p.m. Admission is $25 and includes free drink tokens designated driver? No problem. Everyone under the age of 21 and all designated drivers are admitted free. Featuring a beard and mustache competition and live performances from several local artists, there's nothing better than an afternoon of beer, music, and friends. Septem Beer Fest, located in Avery Park, Saturday, August 26th from 12 to 7 p.m. For more information, visit septembeerfest.org.
0: you're tuned into KBVR. Corvallis, right now you're listening to an episode of Inspiration Dissemination. If you're just joining us, we're interviewing interviewing Lonnie Ivey, who is a recent history master's graduate, um, and we're talking about the history of Maxville, Oregon, um, and the black logging community present there. So, Lonnie, um, we've talked a lot already about sort of Maxville and all of the research you've done. Um, And about the deeply like racist history that was present in Oregon in the 1920s. Um, And where we left off was talking about these baseball teams of these black loggers. um, And you were finding a lot of this information from news articles, you were saying, right?
1: Yeah, all from news articles.
0: So you get a pretty good idea of like very exact dates and like a timeline of events from that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So m- mainly all of the baseball articles would happen mainly between like 1926, 1929 after the community had settled and, you know, started building a community together.
0: Right. So I guess at what point did the Maxville community sort of start dying off or tapering off? Um, because, current-day Maxfield doesn't have the same black population, the same black community as it did during this time. So when did that start changing?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. I think that with the depletion of timber before the Great Depression started, you know, a lot of these smaller companies would just show up. They were called gippos, um, and they would be independent, you know, loggers that would just come out and log, and the big companies would buy the land and log, and, and they had... Uh, a tendency to clear cut the land and so as we're depleting timber you know the the economic um need for timber decreases the more the the product is available and so around 1933 bowman hicks just kind of i don't know just kind of threw in the towels sold it to another uh, sold maxville's property to another logging company another lumber company and they just kind of just dipped out um and went back to the south. And so when that happened, some of the black folks, some of the the logging community did go back down south. A lot of them were from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And so some went back to see their families. Some went back to Arizona. Um, Some loggers went to Vanport, Oregon. And only a couple still stayed in the Wallowa area. But um, I'm trying to imagine... You know, there was just not much there at the time. I think the last time anyone lived on the property was in the mid to late 40s. There were just a couple buildings left. Some of the housing that was built for the loggers was moved into Joseph and still exists now. You can drive past these homes and people are currently living in them, but everything was pretty much dismantled, taken off by rail, sold off. Um, And I think, you know, the key's the keys left the property um i think it was around 1949 when the very last black family left the property
2: and i know that you recently went to maxville for a very special kind of commemoration Uh, maybe you can talk about your visit there and i'd love to hear more
1: about the augmented reality project that you worked on there sure so uh, we went the first week of June. It was Maxville's 100-year celebration as a town. A lot of the community came together. So we have, you know, Gwen Trice organized all this so beautifully. And we had um, Latino Latina speakers that came out. We had a local indigenous People that had come out and every single day would do something called the drum song and give a blessing to Maxville. We had people from different universities all coming together uh, to to speak or to offer something to the Maxville community. Um, we did so we sang songs together. We learned about you know the local businesses in Wilawa and and there were a lot of inspirational. Uh, speeches by Gwen. I believe there was someone from the Smithsonian there who spoke. Um, it was it, it was an experience like no other. It was very immersive. Uh, what we did is we took this project we had been working on, uh, the three of us interns, and we had developed a huge and original database on everything we could find about the black school anything in writing, anything in oral interviews and photos. The same with the the lodge that was once in town and dismantled and and re-put up in Joseph, which will be returning back to Maxville. They've built its foundation as of my visit there. Uh, And then the baseball diamond. So the baseball diamond would be drawn every single spring when the snow would melt off. And, And so being there, so what we did was we put into... A long form video, we did drone footage of taking folks through what Max, like where these three locations would be in Maxville. So we could show them via the drone footage where all of this was. And then we also had on tablets all of our photos and our newspaper articles. And so we had families coming up and everyone could grab a tablet and put on the headphones and and watch this aerial view and and a little bit of storytelling as, as the drone went through. And families could then, you know, flip through these tablets and see pictures of the folks who were living in Maxville. And really astoundingly, we did have some descendants of some of the White loggers there who picked up these tablets and would start crying because they saw their great grandma wow. or their great grandpa, and it meant a lot to them. So we did, you know, allow access to these families because they, I have the chills. Mm-hmm. They hadn't, you know, they'd never seen these photos. Um So it was just really interactive. I think it meant a lot to folks there to kind of put themselves in place and. And I think it meant a lot to to Maxville itself and to Gwen for us to recognize that Maxville is worthy Mm. of a solid place in Oregon history. Um, Black history is Oregon history. And it was just a really great feeling of community and love and strength and watching the bonds um, they all had together. You know, I kind of went into this like, okay, I'm going to write my thesis and, and do my capstone project on you know keeping the integrity of the Maxville community you know really needs to be out there and then during that visit I realized that the integrity was there it yeah. has it has its its keepers and and its stewards and shepherds that are keeping Maxville alive and and thriving so again as white privilege you know of course I you know, expect, oh, you know, I'm going to offer this. But it clearly, it is a well-loved place and well-respected. And, and it's just nice to see the entire community just really building something beautiful out there.
2: Definitely. And I, and I think that feeling that you're describing of descendants being able to see their ancestors, their great-grandparents, memorialized and remembered is something that Maxville deserves. And, and that the black logging community at Maxville is such a unique story and such an important story and one that really bears remembering. And I know that that's been really central to your work. And I know that you're hoping to continue this research. So I wonder if you can talk a bit about kind of what's next for you. I know after graduation, there's a lot of question marks, but what do you hope to continue with this research? And what do you feel like
1: is is up next? Well, I never felt even after I was done with my master's project that, you know, I would just be done with Maxville. It's in, it's in my blood. i love it. I support it. I adore the people there. And I think that it's just such a fascinating story that deserves even more attention. And so, you know, even using, and I, you know, hate repeating myself, but even using white privilege to like get myself a grant to get out there and to get into the museum and um you know there I, I learned a lot of information that I saw photos that no one has had access to because there's no one to archive anything digitally. Um there's there were documents I had never seen before that people need to see um and have access to. I was denied access there as well because they need help digitizing um, Their archive and they need help, you know, they really need someone there for a month or two to really help. And then, yeah, and so, you know, hopefully the agreement is, you know, if I can write myself a grant and get out there and start digging up more and more of this information that needs to be centered in Oregon history, you know, probably find a donation to the museum that the more of this information can get out, the more people can start writing about it, putting it in historical scholarship, and, and, and really... Firmly establishing Maxville is a really epic part of Oregon history, and so I would like to do that. I would like to do more research. I can't not <laughs> do more research about Maxville. I love it. I would like to learn more about um, other Black communities and areas of natural resource extraction where ri- white supremacy in areas of you know really intense white supremacy. I think those stories are fascinating. Um, you know, Oregonians. I uh, don't like to think about, you know, Oregon's racist history. And it's really important to deal with it, to sit uncomfortably with it, and to do something about it. So mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge that it happened because this is how Maxville got erased and excluded from Oregon history. So I'm looking for a job <laughs> right <laughs> now. I, I've i taken this summer to really reckon with a lot of things and, and um, breathe after yeah. six years, six very— intense and uh complicated years and so I I want to advocate. you know my job I feel my natural job is to become an advocate for people for minoritized communities for those with disabilities I'm a disabled uh I was a disabled student student as well still disabled just not a student (laughs) anymore Um, and um you know I'm non-traditional and I'm a non-traditional student or I was and and I just I want to be there to help speak for people who can't, who don't find a platform to speak or need help. You know, all of us tend to need some help at times. And so I really enjoy being the one that offers tools and ideas and plans. Um, and so I'm kind of looking into advocacy roles um, here on campus and, and, you know, through LinkedIn and nationally.
0: Yeah. and. Here on ID, we do like to hear more about your journey as how you got to grad school and, you know, your academic journey and your journey as a person since we've talked before. And I know it is so incredible. And I would love it if, if you would give us some of your background and how you got to where you are.
1: Sure. Um, like I said, I started college when I was 47 uh, I filled out my FAFSA with the help of a caseworker in January of 2017 when my child and I were homeless. And um, I felt lost and desperate to find my way in life, and I really believed that an education would help um, my circumstance and my, and my child's circumstance to kind of rise above and, and and do better. And so as I waited to start Chemeketa in September of 2017, In July of that year, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, a left-wing sphenoid meningioma behind my left eye. Um, And that was life-changing. In the July, August, and September, I had a brain surgery for each month. I really started collecting brain surgeries. It was incredibly difficult. It was life-changing, especially because um, my son and I were homeless, so he would come up and and stay with me at OHSU um, as I would continue to heal from surgery after surgery. So uh, in September, I think four days after they let me out of my third month long stay, um, I got out on a Thursday and started Chemeketa on a Tuesday (laughs) with a, with a pick line in my arm and giving myself antibiotics in writing one-on-one. I remember, you know, putting that sweater over my left hand shoulder and, And being so embarrassed, you know, my head was shaped, it was full of sutures and I couldn't believe I was there. Some some beautiful part of me took care of me and made sure that, you know, I was getting normal things done while my body was, in my mind, was kind of dealing with the trauma of the brain surgery.
2: And you entered OSU studying uh, philosophy and and religious studies and then later, as we've heard, graduated with the master's in history. Yeah. And what brought you to religious studies and philosophy
1: well i've it's it's funny I've always been interested in religion, and mm-hmm. I used to be a very angry atheist mm-hmm. um, growing up due to you know family issues and and wanting to rant and and yell at the world about the way things were and mm-hmm. I found that Christianity was a really great target for that yeah. and so as I look back, you know, my first 47 years, that deep anger and hatred I had for religion in general, I could, you know, pinpoint it by family members who would cosplay as evangelicals and just, you know, experiencing abuse in my childhood. And so I still remain fascinated with, uh, I've always been self-introspective. So I've always thought about philosophy, why the answers to everything, why does this happen? You know, I've always been someone who's Ask questions, and I was, I felt smart, you know, until I got my brain tumor removed, mm-hmm. and then it's like my whole world opened up to me, and I was learning philosophy, and I was getting answers, and I was finding out why, um, why, you know, why are we here? I'm an existentialist mm-hmm. by nature, so that was, you know, beautiful and delicious. But with religious studies, um, I think that helped save my life. I already know that college. Mm-hmm. Uh, has saved my life because it gave me something to focus on instead of wallowing in pity and, and really, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. I just felt this great push after I was alive again, because yeah, so I wasn't going to be asking why
2: me, you just decided yeah. to ask why. Yeah, i oh, like, yeah. oh, it happened to me.
1: So let's not even ask why anymore. Yeah. Let's just find out even more. Yeah. And so when I started taking um, religious studies classes at Chemeketa, I loved them. I wanted more, but they were all just like, you know, the freshman and sophomore year you know 100 200 level classes and then I get to OSU you know for my junior and senior year and I take you know the religious studies program and the professors over at the school of history philosophy and religious studies they're amazing so I've taken I've had some of the best education I could get and and OSU offers a lot of really um incredible Teachers and courses in religious studies. And as I was learning about Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Confucianism and Christianity, um, I stopped being so hateful. Mm. And because I was getting answers, you know, I was, when I was feeling hateful growing up, I wasn't angry at um, the people, I was angry at the religion. And so the more I've educated myself, I realized that, you know, religion is beautiful. I'm finding. I myself am not a religious person, but I do find that people of faith look for faith in a lot of things, and that's okay. It may not be for me, but, you know, there's just so much complexity and nuance and horror and terror in religion. You know, some of the worst atrocities in history are because of religious groups. But the, but the idea of religion just continues to astound me, and it's just something um, we took a methods and theories class, Surprised with Dr. Kollinger, mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, it was just so meaningful to those of us, a really small cohort, I think there were four or five of us in that um, seminar course, 400 seminar course, um, in our senior year that It was so good and so meaningful to us. Our instructor, Dr. Kohlinger, created a whole new class after because we had heard all of the, you know, middle of the road uh, religious theory and methods, but then we went on to some really subversive, controversial really incredibly deep um, religious theorists and and methodology that really forced us to even dig deeper into religious studies. And so, you know, I love religious studies. I I did apply for PhD programs, five of them in religious studies. It didn't work out. Um, By the way, everyone, it's okay to get... um, rejected, Mm -hmm. just, you know, nail those letters up on the wall and call them your oopsie, you know, just, (laughs) it's, it's okay to get rejected. And, you know, now I'm, I'm kind of thankful because I want to focus my life on something different. And I don't know that, you know, my health and, and um, everything else could have withstood a seven, six, seven, eight year program. So yeah, That's, that's how I got there.
2: (laughs) So we are almost out of time. Um, It's been such an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to have you here on the air. Um, One of the questions that we like to answer, I think we've probably heard part of parts of this uh, before, but what is your favorite part of your research? What's your favorite
1: part of either the process or the result? I think my very favorite part of research is learning how to decolonize my own mind opening my mind up learning more about systemic racism in this country it's completely upsetting and you know social justice is a thing because it's really it's really important and you know it's it's not funny I think that we all need to really educate ourselves and so over two years of researching this small black community and researching the great migration and the Jim Crow South I mean these ideas um, and these events in history, you know, really serve to inform and and they're painful, and they're ugly. And you witness a lot of abuse against black communities and people of color in general. And so I think understanding what people have been up against in this country at the hands of others, especially in in white supremacy, um, I think that that hard education was worth every moment of it. And it makes me really want to dig even deeper and find out how I can, how I can play a better part and not play a better part, but be a better ally to other communities, to marginalized communities.
0: Um, And then another question that we like to answer is what advice you would give to maybe your past self or, undergraduates or other students, people going into grad school, just some advice that you think should be heard?
1: Yeah. So some, I think some good advice going into grad school is one, be kind to yourself. I think many people are in, you know, in the purview of going to school. I think some people believe they have to be perfectionists in school and it really pushes not so great mental health. And I think that we really need to be kind to ourselves to find time for self-care, which I really believe is important. I think another thing that's important for grad students to start thinking about in undergrad is your committee, your master's committee, your grad school committee, um, making sure that these folks are loving, supportive. They believe in your work. I was thankfully surrounded by people like Dr. Marisa Chabel and Dr. Eliza Barstow. A beautiful community of women who believe in power, empowerment and and supporting their students. So I think a really good committee is good and also find time to breathe and have fun in grad mm-hmm. school because it's so it's so good. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. OK, there's my little logging reference, but <laughs> sometimes we can't see the joy in what we're doing and, and, the, and the the kind of um, models we're setting. Like for my son, he sees The joy i've gotten in school and it's really hard and everything but all of it has been worth it every step has been worth it for me so just keep going don't give up well you know i think you followed your own advice
2: for sure there yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so lonnie it's been so great to have you um if you joined halfway through we've been talking with lonnie ivy who just graduated with the masters in history um, just this past spring from osu and has devoted much of her research to the black logging community in maxville oregon so for our last question here, uh, we like to play out our guests with a closing song of their choosing. So perhaps you could introduce the song we're about to hear and tell
1: us why you chose it. Sure. And and thank you so much, you guys, for having me. I've appreciated all the conversations we've had. And it's it's just been a really lovely experience all around. You're both fantastic people. And um, again, thank you for having me so in choosing the song uh, tonight, I we recently lost Sinead O'Connor, uh, a woman of of power and honesty in uh, the music industry. It's just tragic. Um, someone who really had difficulty with mental illness, and I think that we all struggle at times. And and um, I decided to take us out with the song "Troy," which is a really beautiful song of empowerment and strength and. Rising from the Flames.
2: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
0: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.